All right, Popeyes, on today's episode of the Kung Fu Genius, the KFG will be talking to the KFC Kung Fu Conversations. A whole bargain bucket full of gems, lots of cross-training across multiple styles, and a whole six-piece of, hey, bro, I kind of already know Wing Chun, so maybe I can train you. Let's get to it. And every day, I practice martial arts. Hey guys, how you doing? Fantastic. So, so nice to have you guys. So uh, we have Owen and Randall from the Kung Fu Conversations podcast, the only podcast that competes with the KFG as the KFC, right? And now it's like the battle for ultimate supremacy, right? The KFG meets the KFC, right? Uh, so yeah, thank, yes, th- thank you so much for uh, coming on, you guys. Uh, I've uh, listened to a bunch of your episodes. Uh, you guys send them to me. I have, you know, I have very limited time, but whenever I have a chance, I do listen to you guys. I think you guys are great. I recently listened to an episode you did about cross training, meaning essentially training uh, in other arts and when is this a good idea? When is it maybe not a good idea? And uh, you guys had a lot of really um, great insights on that. Um, I've talked about it before, but um, in my podcast, I'm usually, especially if it's with Dre, I'm the guy saying everything and the other guy's going, yeah, yeah. So I now can discuss this topic a little bit back and forth with other instructors who have some some ideas about this as well. So um, before we get started, just wanna remind everyone that the best way to support the Kung Fu Genius Podcast is on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Kung Fu Genius. The link is in the description below. For as little as $5 a month, you can support your favorite or maybe second favorite Kung Fu podcast out there and get access to episodes early. Higher levels of support get additional benefits, even a private episode with me, as well as my Instagram subscriber reel. So you don't have to subscribe to me on Instagram and on Patreon. If you're on Patreon, you get those as well. So anyway, support me on Patreon. I would definitely appreciate it. So, all right, now having said all that, uh, so the topic cross training. So uh, we're talking about students who train in multiple disciplines, presumably at the same time. Uh, This is something that's, I think, been a debate in martial arts for a very long time, even before the mixed martial art days. Uh, And so I just wanted to maybe get some of your general thoughts uh, before we go into it in a little more detail, whether you think it's a good idea at all, uh, or maybe it's a good idea for a certain segment. So what, uh, what do you guys think about it? Maybe you can start us out, Owen. Yeah, sure. I think uh, for me, uh, for teaching for the last 12 years, 15 years almost, um, I think that it's really, it makes a big difference if a student can, at least initially for the first year or two years, really focus on the specific art. I think that makes a big difference in terms of, um, in, in the long term. Uh, I think that if you get too early on, I think you get a lot of nervous system confusion. Um, if you're studying multiple arts, especially like for me with internal martial arts, because really that's sort of my wheelhouse, my place of experience. And there's a lot of, of uh, concept and there's a lot of uh, depth in terms of precision and detail that need to be embodied. And I find that we, at least it, once again in my experience that having students who study say multiple disciplines um, at the same time, at least early on, that, that really creates uh, some challenges. Absolutely. Randall, what do you think? 
So I'll give you a little personal story between myself and Owen. When I first met Owen, I had about 15 or 16 years of Wing Chun in my nervous system. And so when I started training with Owen, starting to do the Xing Yi, it, it was almost subconscious. You know, I'd see a hand and be like, oh, that's Wing Chun, that's Wing Chun, that's Wing Chun. And Owen would give me like some feedback, like on a physical scale, like you might do a, you know, like a bump with a, um, a water hand or something like that, or a Bung Chuan. And I'm like, okay, that does not feel like Wing Chun. And so what I had to do as someone that started to cross train later in their, their career, so to say in their martial, martial practice, I had to be like, okay, well, let me put Wing Chun on a shelf. I'm still gonna practice that. But when I'm in Owen's class to respect him as a teacher, why don't I just focus on what he's trying to teach me and his teaching methodology? So I gotta say, Sifu Alex the first and a little test to this. And sometimes when I go pick on him, he'll be like, hey, you're doing Wing Chun over there. I'm like, okay, okay, it's still pretty good. But um, that's not what I went to him to learn. I went to learn Xing Yi. And so my first three and a half years as a rookie student in Xing Yi was trying to get the Wing Chun, so to say, out of my Xing Yi. Right, and then right. once I, I, I was a solid, you know, blank slate, then I could really start to embody some, some of the, the movements. movements. And, and, and a lot, lot of it to me, as, as a rookie, rookie student, you know, that, that white belt, belt, if you will, was the mechanics. The mechanics, the mechanics weren't the same. same. You know, and so I really had to work on that. I felt like I was at a bunch of servo motors that were trying to move opposite directions and I wasn't used to that. You know, Wing Chun is very complex in its own way, but Xing Yi is very complex as well in its own way as well. And so what I had to do was again, start with the blank slate, try to reset the nervous system and get in there and get to work on it. You know, so that's the personal um, journey that I've had to work with. Got it. I think maybe before we go on, uh, let's probably tell the audience a little bit about you guys in case anyone uh, who watches me has not uh, caught wind of Kung Fu conversation. So Owen, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about your martial arts background and maybe uh, the genesis of your podcast. So what do you teach? What have you done? What do you teach? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, you know, I've been doing martial arts since I was a kid. Uh, mostly on and off because I, I grew up in a little tiny mountain town out here in Colorado. Uh, so, you know, I had some exposure, like most kids, to Taekwondo and some karate. And, you know, I had a little bit of like small circle jujitsu. Um, but I really didn't start seriously doing martial arts until I was about 22. Um, and then I started out in a, in a Shaolin school that was around here. And I was there for a few years and the conditioning was good and the and the, uh, the process was was good, but the school and the material became more questionable as I went on. Okay. okay. And like, I, I knew that I wasn't getting what I wanted. And I really had, because I had some exposure at that school to Shingi, Bago, and Taiji, sort of the three intro martial arts. And I knew that's really where I wanted to go. And then I got very, very lucky uh, in finding my teacher, uh, Marcus Brinkman, um, who's the senior student of Lotus Show in the Yitzong system out of uh, Taipei, Taiwan. Um, and the, the sort of specialty in that school is, is Xing Yi and Baba. Um, and so, yeah, and that's, that's what I've been doing ever since. And so I started with, uh, Marcus in January of 1999. And then, uh, he left in 2006, uh, and went back to Taiwan. And subsequently I, I, I would bring Lowell, his, his teacher in for, um, seven or eight years. 
uh, to do uh, seminars about once a year. And then uh, one of his other senior students, uh, Matt Autry, I had to bring him in maybe twice a year, once a year to, to do uh, seminars. Just, I gotta keep learning, you know? Sure, sure, sure. So do you have an actual school or do you teach a group or what do you have? Yeah, I really like to think of my group as like a study group. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's it's not like a formal school. I have like a regular like nine to five sort of, actually it's more than that, but uh, uh, job that I, I do on a regular basis. So, you know, th this is really my hobby, but it's really my passion. It's, it's what I love to do is, is martial arts in general. Sure, sure. And Randall, how? Uh, so you had mentioned you had done some Wing Chun before. So how did how did you come to train with Owen and what is your background? So I started Wing Chun in 1998 at Mesa State College. The head of the math department was smitten with Wing Chun. So he was bringing in my current Sifu, Sifu Mayor. Uh, we had a free Wing Chun club. Yeah, showed up three nights a week. We just helped sponsor to bring in Sifu Mayor. And it, it was fantastic. Um, he would dump like a year or two worth of material in our brains all at once. And uh, then um, Ed, Ed Bonan Hamada, he, the head of the math department, he would do the teaching uh, side of things. And I really fell in love with the teaching methodology. And so from there, you know, I, 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 I did uh, Pac May uh, the following my freshman summer of college. Uh, I found a wide eyebrow group here in Longmont, which I currently live now, talk about serendipity. And I became really good friends with the senior student of our Pac May Sifu. And we stayed in touch for many years. Um, I went on to become Sifu Mayor's Colorado representative about 2008 or 2009. I continued to study with Sifu Mayor, as I still do, um, and word kind of got out and there were a few schools around the area that would bring me in to teach an introduction to Wing Chun. And word got out that it was pretty good, so years later, you know, almost 25 years into Wing Chun this October, I taught at 12 different schools across the state of Colorado. And done about 50 introductory seminars, which I'm, I'm pretty, pretty, I think that's a pretty cool thing. And so as I stayed friends with Steve, I was talking to you about my Pac May friend. Uh, I moved down to this area about 12 years ago with a girlfriend. Things didn't work out. I was kind of in a rough place and I needed something to pick me up. And out of nowhere, Steve calls me. He's like, hey man, I found this guy. He's teaching um, Xing Yi. It's going to be very different from the Pac May that we did or the Wing Chun that you do. <laughs> but they're a great group of people. And I think you're really going to find that you're going to like the instructor. Everybody's super cool. And we're here to train and sweat and have a good time. And sure enough, I showed up for three or four classes and I was hooked. And, you know, the first three years that I was in Xingyi, I really used it kind of as a vehicle to kind of get out of my funk state that I was in. So sure, I was really sure. training hard really fell in love with it and i'm still smitten with Xingyi. and about a year and a half ago i started bakwa and it is hard as a mofo uh, that one's really been a challenge for me as much as Xingyi was to kind of reboot the nervous system but owen and i you know we just hit it off um i think i don't know if it was just a dedication but you know we would talk about things you know he's like well you've taught before you've worked with people before what do you think of this and then i'd be like oh well that's pretty good i think that and then he's and then i'd be like well, I'm going to teach this seminar. What do you think about this? He's like, have you thought about it this way? And we just kept having lunch and these awesome conversations about martial arts that never really went into a woo-woo 
or a mystical phase. It was always very practical, very tangible, very approachable, almost like a coach, if you would. And so, you know, it was actually Owen that said it, you know, COVID happens. He's like, you know, we have some pretty damn good conversations about martial arts. What do you think about a podcast? And here we are now. Wow. That's awesome. Hey everyone, just want to let you know Wing Chun Illustrated is now offering a paperback edition through Amazon reaching a larger global market. And no, they're not ditching the glossy magazine edition through MagCloud. You can now simply choose the version of this magazine you prefer and the one with the cheapest shipping wherever you live. Order your copy of Wing Chun Illustrated today across 12 Amazon marketplaces with free shipping for Prime members. Go and check that out. Uh, It's also cool too, I I think you're absolutely right in terms of being one of the few, if not the only, who represent uh, the late uh, Sifu Wong-Kyu in, in America. Um, he, uh, uh, Sifu Wong-Kyu was actually very good friends with uh, Sifu Leung Ting, one of my teachers. And um, I always really, I, I never had a chance to meet him, but um, my Sifu, Sifu Keith Kanspecht, was very, very fond of Wong-Kyu. Uh, and he was very devastated when he passed away. And I think of all of the early period students of Grandmaster Yip Man, I think Wong Kyu st- stood out for one, um, one thing in particular is that, although it's not exclusive, most of Yip Man's first generation of students tended to be kind of blue collar, uh, you know, salt of the earth uh, workers. And Wong Kyu was a, a very educated, very erudite student of Yip Man. So I think that his, uh, understanding and also his ability to chronicle what had gone on at that time, because I believe he had also worked as a reporter or he was some kind of journalist, um, made him a very invaluable link to what was going on in that time. So, I mean, we can all count ourselves very lucky. I always watch some of those old videos of uh, Wong Kyu uh, teaching seminars where he would tell some of those stories, uh, things that happened between Lo Yu and the Wang Chun people and stuff. and, and I uh, really um, lament the fact that I uh, never had a chance to speak to him. I think I would have really, really got on with him quite well. So now we got your background. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, uh, go back into this topic of uh, cross training. Now, do you guys think that there's a certain point when it's, cause obviously I don't think cross training is necessary for everyone. Obviously there are people who are phenomenal practitioners in their one style and they're like the best. And those are the people you go to, to learn to that style. We rarely go to the guy who's a master of eight different martial arts to learn any one of those things. We go to the the guy or the gal that really, really has that style down. And, um, but you know, not everyone is necessarily destined to become the leader of a style or whatever. So um, while it's not necessary, uh, do you guys have an idea or, or an opinion as to when it might be a good time, if that's something a student wanted to do, what, what's that threshold where you would say, okay, maybe now it's okay if you want to try something else? <laughs> um, that's, a, that's a very good question. Like it's a bit, it's, for me, it's a bit of a tough question too. I, um, I think that, at least in my experience, it really depends on the individual. Um, you know, and kind of, uh, what are they trying to get out of the art? I think their personal goals make a big difference in terms of like when, when they would hit that threshold. Like some people just come, they just, they want uh, more of a social environment. Maybe they want, uh, you know, maybe the, they, they want to, it looks good on their resume, so to speak, you know, I'm doing this and checking this box, but they're, they're never really going to be a serious practitioner. And that's okay. I don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as 
everybody involved is kind of clear about it. It's like, yeah, okay, you know, this person, you know, may not take it as seriously as some other person. And in that case, sure, yeah, I think that that, in, in my experience, uh, that person would, they could go study with somebody else or study another style um, earlier than, say, somebody who was really trying to invest themselves in the art. And I know that's kind of a nuanced answer, but that, that's really, it really speaks to my experience with it. Now, on the other hand, somebody who's really sort of uh, really putting in the time, really training, they're coming to class um, and they're sort of checking all of those boxes because they really want to invest in this and, and get what they can out of it. Um, at least for the internal martial arts, I think it, it, it's probably around the two and a half or three year mark. Um, uh, maybe a little bit longer depending on the person because I think everybody kind of starts in a slightly different place, uh, you know, whether that's like physically or emotionally or mentally um, or just, you know, situationally in their lives. You know, if you've got a young guy who's single and has a lot of time on his hands, maybe he's going to college, that's going to be, that person's going to have just a lot more opportunity than a person who's maybe in their 30s or 40s and has some children and, you know, has, you know, just more life going on in general. So, yeah, I think, you know, that, that's kind of, speaks to my experience anyway. Sure. Randall, what do you think? Well, we had our own show about that prompted this discussion between the three of us was actually talking about when it becomes too much. What, you know, when, when, when are you doing too much material? And I really think for me, it's when it's not accessible. One thing that, and I'm going to talk about this too, if we have time today, is I cross train with other people, not just for tactic or for theory or for even their combat methodology but i like to cross train with other teachers on how they teach and present material and i think that that's something that we can all use doesn't matter what style you do and it doesn't always have to be a martial arts instructor you can learn you know whether it's cooking whether it's a mechanic whatever it is finding new skills and new ways to pass along information is super important for us especially if we are going to continue to be not only students of these arts, but teachers. Something that I've taken personally from Owen and put into my own Wing Chun practice on how I teach things is the dialing in and out of intensity on whether it be an entry method, whether it be um, controlled sparring. I think that's something that I'll do is say, okay, we're only gonna use these three hands for a light controlled sparring session, go. you know, Or you can only use this kick. So those are some teaching methodologies that I've integrated into how I present my Wing Chun. It's not the hand movement. It's not the power structure. It's nothing like that. It's how is this information being presented? Now to go back to the question on when does it become too much? Let's say that I, like myself, right? I do Wing Chun, I do Xing Yi, and I feel pretty comfortable applying either of those in like free sparring, free rondori, whatever you want to call it. But let's say I took a year and a half of maybe a screamer or Arnis, and a lot of the stick fighting arts have an empty handed method. So if Owen presented a class to me where we're free sparring, it's like, okay, well, you can use all your Wing Chun entries, but when you get inside, you can only do your Filipino uh, hand tactics. And if I can't do that, if I have to sit and go, uh, what was this? Well, I'm getting punched in the face. I'm getting thrown. I'm getting joint locked, I'm getting kicked. When you have to think, uh, duh, am I gonna be able to execute or land this? That's when you don't have it. When, when the brain has to stop 
and the body can't do the process, then it's not in the nervous system. And so as a practitioner, if I wanted to stay with that art, either I might have to dedicate more of my free time into the empty handed practice into the Filipino art. So I could dial that up and I might dial back my Wing Chun and my Xing Yi training a little bit. Never going to stop it. Never, never stopping at a hundred percent. Right. But you can dial that back and then focus on one thing that that's another thing too, is learning how to focus on each of these arts. And something that I really learned from Owen that I want to share is when I started as a student from him, he's like, listen, you've got a really good, complete Wing Chun system. I don't want you to give that up. You, you love this. I want you to stay with this, but if you can, kind of drill a little shelf in your head that says Wing Chun and drill a little shelf in your head that says Shin Because I think too many people that cross train just try to lump it together. And, and then all of a sudden you got a big pile of mush that you can't really get your hands or your fingers or a spoon on. It's not tangible to, to the student or the learner. Right. No. Yeah, those are, those are some really great points. I mean, uh, yeah, I feel I'm, I have a very easy podcast today because basically you guys are more or less mirroring how I feel about it and I don't have to say it. <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, kind of to echo what you guys said a little bit, uh, it's obviously a very individual thing. Depends on the student, depends on their aptitude, their time, their situation. If they're just someone who's a dabbler and wants to explore, they have a very different focus than someone who really wants to really get into something deeply. And I think that kind of shelf analogy is really good, but I also think it's a matter of there are people who can do that and there are people who simply cannot. Uh, so for example, I'm, I'm a total Wing Chun head. Wing Chun is what I do, but I have trained in uh, multiple other martial arts. I train in jujitsu regularly with uh, Professor Magno Gama from Hensel Gracie, but I don't run the risk of in the middle of Chi Sao suddenly going for a double leg takedown and then going for an omoplata on the ground because I just confuse them. I, I have no problem like we are doing Wing Chun or if strikes are coming at me, defending them in a Wing Chun way, but oh, you wanna see some of the jujitsu stuff and then just going into that shelf and doing that. But I find not everyone is able to do that, whether it's, uh, you know, they don't have a physical aptitude for it or they're just not solid enough in any one of those things to be able to compartmentalize it. I remember uh, many years ago, um, we, uh, we have a very, uh, it's almost like a rite of passage here for it's for in our ranking system. It's the the level nine test, which is for the students. It's really tough. It's like a five part test. We check the first two forms, the cheese out, the fighting, everything. We want to make sure they can really do it before they start learning more advanced stuff. And we have a fighting gauntlet where you basically stand there. There's a room full of fresh attackers and they're coming at you all with non non Wing Chun attacks and you have to defend. And when I'm satisfied as they stop, the next one comes at you and basically it's just a run of fresh attackers attacking you with nothing that looks like Wing Chun. So I can see if you could stop a takedown, swings, all that kind of stuff. And I had a student, and by the way, that test usually comes after about two to three years. So it comes at a point where students should have already integrated the body mechanics and the, the idea of the style. If they don't have it in that time, they just need to cook a little bit more, but usually, and I think you also said it in one of your recent podcasts, that after about three years, if, if you don't kind of have it a little bit, maybe this isn't the martial art for you, right? And uh, so when I do this test, I can kind of see, all right, what can they do, do they have it? And I had one student who was 
training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu parallel to his Wing Chun. And suddenly he had that kind of almost cognitive dissonance, a kind of split brain, a punch is coming at me, all right? Do I position myself with footwork and defend it using a simultaneous action or do I dive in for a double leg takedown? And he was like kind of split brain on every attack. He would enter with a paxel and then suddenly he would start trying to like judo toss his partner. And uh, what ended up happening is he wasn't effective using either one. So if, if he had just used Brazilian Jiu Jitsu the whole time, I would have said, well, you defended yourself, but you still failed your Wing Chun test because you didn't use any Wing Chun, right? Uh, whereas if he had effectively used Wing Chun and maybe threw one judo hip toss in there, I'd be like, okay, I'll let it go. But he was not effective at either one and I had to fail him for the test. And I've had other students who have trained in other martial arts, parallel boxing, kickboxing, jujitsu. And when it came time for that test, they performed Wing Chun and did what they were supposed to do. So I think even that compartmentalization is super important, but I also think some people are just simply not uh, capable of it, or maybe it would just take them away longer time to be able to do it. Um, do you have uh, do you have any similar experiences, Owen, with a student who did both and, and it was kind of ruining what you were trying to teach them? Maybe with the exception, oh, yeah. exception of Randall, maybe at first with his Wing Chun. <laughs> yeah. Um... You know, I think I, I, my experience sort of is is a little bit more with people similar to Randall's circumstance who come into my class and they have, you know, 10, 15 years, 20 years of experience in other arts. And then having for them having to sort of be able to put that down and focus over here. OK, this is what you're doing now. I guess, you know, it's like the old Chinese saying they have to empty their cup and they're 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 not it's they're not capable. Right. Because they spent so much time really burning this this other art into their nervous system right their coordination their balance their timing is all based on this other system that they have a real challenge when it comes to you know trying to integrate a new method and i think that that sort of speaks to your story about your student as well and i also i also have had some really great successes with people who have really put in the time and took it seriously uh so to speak once again that story you were you're relating that people who have come from different backgrounds and really did put in the time and then were later on were really able to start to put those types of things together i've got one student in particular who had done a keto for 10 years 12 years something like that before they came and started studying with me and um he really took it seriously and he really spent the time trying to get what i was teaching and then you know subsequently now it's like i don't i don't want to get too involved with him in terms of like grappling because his chin off from his Aikido days is really, really good. So, you know, he's been able to integrate a lot of those locks and holds into his, his Shingy and his Bagua. Awesome. Randall. So I'm going to, I might take this question in a different way and it might come back to you, Sifu. So get ready. Here we go. So something that Sifu Mayer's done, and I'm going to give him props and uh, um, a little, pomp and circumstance for this is when we first started doing the Wing Chun classes with the drills and things like that, he was very good at using minimal Chinese names. He's like, I want you to work on this hand shape. I want, you know, this and this. And everything was pressure. It was force. It was pressure, balance, speed, distance, timing. And though 
when I go and teach in other schools, I'm like, okay, I'm going to give you a Chinese name for this, but don't fall in love with that. Here's what I want you to do. This is what this hand might do. And this is one thing that it can do, because that's something that else I found kind of special about Sifu Mayor and the Wong Qi Method is we might have one hand shape, but having multiple ways to apply it. And so I was working with a group for many years. Um, the school is now defunct, I'm very sad to say. Uh, the Parker Kung Fu School uh, with Sifu Wayne Henton. And one of the greatest compliments I ever got was a student that I worked with three times. And he's like, I've only seen you three times. I've been at the school for three years. But in the three times that I've trained with you, I can use everything that you've taught me in sparring. So I think sometimes too, as well as cross training with other people is looking at the learning curve of having it being accessible too. Um, something that Sifu Mayer talks about is the learning curve to mastery can never be shortened. If you want to be a master in something, that arc is going to be not only your personal journey, but it's going to be way out there. And, you know, it might be the day that they shovel dirt in your face that you become a master. A lot like these great Chinese masters. They didn't become masters till they passed away. But as a teacher for a rookie student, I'm always trying to find new ways to introduce the basic material to make it more accessible to that student. And then that might be a way where that learning curve for that student, if they did want to cross train in something else, well, I've got a good year and a half of Wing Chun in my nervous system and under my belt, but it's very accessible to me. And I also think that sometimes not having a lot of things, but having one or two things that you can use in multiple different ways, that is another way to help accelerate that learning curve. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I don't yeah, know if that yeah. answered. So many people are confused about basics in Wing Chun Chi Sao. Some view it as a collection of moves and masters confuse their own students by talking of principles and concepts without telling them what's what. The 15 Chi Sao Fundamentals is my attempt at explaining Wing Chun Chi Sao from a perspective of principles, but also with the basic techniques required to express those principles. It shows the framework for Hong Kong Wing Chun Chi Sao, in particular, the training of Pun Sao and Lap Da. This is necessary training before going on to the higher and more spontaneous expression of Chisau. Right now, if you use the code KFG Chisau, you can get a signed copy of my book for the price of the unsigned one. Click on the link in the description below and use the code KFG Chisau at checkout to get a signed copy of this full color, over 230 page manual on the vital foundational training exercise of Wing Chun. This offer is good while supplies last, so get yours today. Yeah, no, that, 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 that's great. Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, when when we discuss any of these kind of topics, they're always multifactorial because you know we're dealing with different students, uh, different interests, different backgrounds. And so far we've actually discussed it from what I would consider a very positive light. Um, there is also a negative side to it too, which I think also needs to be addressed. And perhaps it's maybe more of a city thing. There are people who legitimately want to learn different things because they, they, you know, they're very curious or they want to expand their knowledge base. And then there seems to be a segment of the martial arts community that um, is actually somewhat afraid of really getting into something deep. And when they're not good at something, they think they're going to immediately plug it up by seeing something else. 
And then when they go somewhere else and they're like, well, I can't really quite do this either. Oh, but then there's boxing. And, oh, yeah, um, but yeah, but boxing doesn't really have a, well, I can then do kickboxing. And then there's this, this idea of confusing an open mind with an undisciplined mind. And I, I find that that is, um, there is sometimes an undercurrent of that, um, at least in my experience teaching here in the city of people who are like, they come to me and they say, oh, uh, yeah, I already learned Wing Chun, uh, which already, which for me is a very bizarre thing to say because I've been doing Wing Chun for almost, for my entire adult life since I was a teenager. And when I go to Hong Kong, which I'm going in two weeks and I have a chance to sit next to a Sivu who learned from Yip Man in the 50s, well, I'm not gonna go, well, you know, I already learned Wing Chun you know, you shut up and you listen to the guy because even if the guy says something that you don't totally agree with, you're still learning something. Oh, this Sivu's view on this is this. Maybe it's not my cup of tea, but if I talk to him and I find out more, maybe I can understand this person's thinking and, and this idea that it's possible to have a deep conversation with someone and not have to be in agreement for on everything and not and that not having to be contentious either, you know? But there's this other segment that just, they're like, yeah, 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 I already know Wing Chun. Okay, so why are you coming to my school? Yeah, I just want a place where I can stick hands and, and do some free, like, you know, cross training with a bunch of other guys. And it's like, well, my paying students are here to learn. They're not, they're not paying me to be your training partner because you don't want to learn. And, you know, especially here in New York, you don't, the crazy people who've walked in through that front door, I'm gonna write a book just on the, the, I mean, you guys have heard some of it from the podcast, the idea that I would let someone I don't know come in here and train with one of my students who's, who perhaps that student is here to build up self-confidence and learn step-by-step, step, and now someone comes in and they just wanna crack them to make themselves feel better, and they're not seriously looking to cross-train, they're just looking for many different places to catch something, and hopefully plug up what I feel is a very unserious attitude towards martial arts. Do you, have you had similar experiences with these kind of, uh, I'm gonna plug it up by doing 80 different things kind of guys? Randall? Oh, oh yeah. man. Yeah. Um, so, by the way, is that what you call your uh, forever the yellow belt, Sifu? <laughs> I, I think you mentioned that before and I love that. <laughs> So personally, right now, um, I met a person, and I'm not going to name any names. And I, by the way, I have worked with other Wing Chun students, practitioners, and things have gone smashingly and, and in a positive way. Um, I am working someone right now that has been in a lineage for six years and has taken the pictures. I've seen the pictures of them and their Sifu and, you know, they, they actually have a like a, a little bit of skill and we first met a year ago and it was a talking all we did was talk and i'm like well, we, well let's train a little bit and they would always bring it back to a conversation so the first meeting that i had with this person was an hour and a half of yapping which i cannot stand i i don't want to be uh, an old man sitting around drinking tea and pissing on other people that's not my style of wing chun Right. Which which, you know, we, we have that, you know, some somewhat some people like to do that in the Wing Chun community. That's not for me. <laughs> all, all of the people in Hong Kong pretty much do that. You could just stay out of Hong Kong if you don't want tea, chit chat and gossip and shit talking everyone else. 
Well, I'll come pick on you in New York then. That'll be good enough. Perfect. Um, but I recently, I've got a great group that I'm working with down in Denver right now. Uh, they go by the handle of 5280 Shaolin or uh, the Shaolin Denver Tai Chi group. And I have been doing fundraisers for them for about a year and a half, maybe two years now. I'll come in twice a year and I will, and again, I, I don't make any money off Wing Chun. I'm a blue collar guy. I don't work a nine to five either. I drive city bus for Boulder. So I work ridiculous hours, which is, you know, I'm usually picking on you on Instagram in some of those ridiculous hours, uh, sending you funny things. And so Wing Chun, anytime I teach, has always been a labor of love. And so for my two-day seminar, which is a six-hour introduction, it's it's $45. Super affordable. I wanted to make it affordable for people. Or you show up for one day, it's $25. Or if you show up wearing one of our cool t-shirts as swag, it's only $25. So I want to I want to make this really affordable. And I usually have a pretty good turnout, at least, at least for our little school down there. And I invited this person to come to the school. And every other 10 to 15 minutes, they were taking a smoke break. They brought their partner, which was fine. And I invited this person on my dime, but their partner didn't pay anything for two days, which I found insulting to myself and the school. Um, they would constantly be trying to show what their system of Wing Chun was. I didn't ask for that. I didn't ask for their help. I brought an assistant. I brought my roommate, who's awesome. And he, you know, he has the vocabulary down for how I want things presented. And so now the next time I talk to this person, I'm gonna have to be like, listen, I think you're gonna have to find somebody else to cross train with. Um, I had seen a video of them sparring with a, a Pac May guy at an open contact tournament and they got obliterated and they were literally going to come to me to learn how to spar. And I'm like, didn't your Sifu teach you this? Don't you have access to this enough? Why are you coming to me? And I'm okay to I'm okay to teach you, but you're gonna have to put what you know down. And then I get I just keep getting interrupted. And like I said, like you said, your students are there paying paying you to learn from you, you know, not to get beat up by a stranger that's coming in off the streets. Right, right. And so I'm just going to have to be up front and be like, listen, I don't think our chemistry works. And that's another thing too about cross training super. Maybe and, and this is a lot of people needing to swallow their pride is, you know, I'm not the only Wing Chun, I'm not even a Sifu, but I'm not the only Wing Chun guy in the state. I can at least think of five other guys. Maybe I'm not, don't give up on Wing Chun. Let me point you to this other person. Maybe their teaching style and method is better suited for what you're looking for. And I think we forget that sometimes as, as teachers, you know, it's like, Okay, if they didn't get along with me, that, that's okay. Not everybody does. But if you still want Wing Chun and you're still serious about it, why don't you try this person? Why don't you try this Sifu? Why, 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 why don't you look at these, working with these people? Right. You know, and I, I think that's something that we forget sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Owen? Yeah, I was going to say, just to sort of piggyback on what Randall was saying, um, you know, I think a, a lot of times it, it comes down to fit. Like, is this person a good fit? Is their personality a good fit to... Uh, you know, what I'm teaching, this art, my school, you know, we, you can take that and put it in a lot of categories. But um, I think that, that so the Eats on School has been around for quite a while, um, but it comes from the Tong Shodao School, uh, which has been around for a very long time. Um, 
so pretty much since you know the early early 1950s um, and there have been a lot of practitioners and a lot of Western practitioners who went to Taiwan and learned these arts and then they came back and they have taught people. So it's, it's interesting for me because um, I run into people who are, I guess you would say they were kind of my martial cousins and people who, who may come to my class because they want uh, to, because similar to uh, Wen Chang, I imagine that, that, that they want to experience a different flavor of Xingyi or, they, or a different flavor of the Bagua that was taught. And um, sometimes that's really great. Sometimes it's, it's great for me too, because I get to learn and see kind of what methodologies their teacher, their teacher's teacher had developed over time, um, which is really, really interesting to me. But, you know, but to go back to what you were, you were speaking to, it, you know, there can be like the student who comes in and they're like, oh, well, I, and I for sure have these people. Well, I already know Xingyi and I, you know, I'm just kind of here to like, see what you're doing. I'm, I'm, you know, and they're from a, a cousin school, you know, sort of a third cousin of, of my school. And, um, you know, and I'm like, no, because I'm not, I'm not a professional teacher and I don't have a, I don't have a full-time school. I only teach like uh, one day a week actually. So it's our, my time with my students is very precious and I have to manage it very well. And so therefore, and because I'm, I'm not dependent on my school, you know, quite frankly, I can tell somebody to go off right. and get the out of my school because I don't, I don't like you. I don't like what you're bringing to my class. So go away. And I've done it. I've for sure done it. Um, but to also speak to what you're saying before, I've, I've had people come in the door who are like, yeah, you know, I've done, I've done some of this, I've done some jujitsu, I've done some Kung Fu of some sort. And then they're like, I want to learn Xingyi and I want to learn to, I want to learn to fight with I'm like, okay, you know, that's cool. But you know, if you, if you want to really learn how to fight, like, you know, if that's really your thing, like maybe go do Thai boxing, you know, like go devote yourself for a year to like going to do like Muay Thai or, or kickboxing or, you know, something like that. And I think you're going to get a lot more out of it. And, and so, you know, I, I have definitely had that conversation too. So. Yeah, yeah, these things all uh, sound like echoes of, I think, what probably goes on in a lot of uh, martial arts schools. Um, yeah, they have almost this idea that, uh, you know, um, what, uh, to go back to what Randall was saying, I call them professional yellow belts. <laughs> uh, so they, they, they stick around just enough to learn a little bit, but not really enough to actually know anything about that style in depth. Um, professional white belt, on the other hand, is is a very is the exact opposite of a professional yellow belt. To have the mindset of a constant beginner and to be hungry and thirsty for learning something new is great. Um, so for me, a professional white belt is a compliment. The professional yellow belt, not so much. Sometimes they come in almost with this idea like, yeah, I also did Wing Chun, so I guess I'm your colleague or something. And it's yeah, like, like have something to give your school. Yeah, it's like my, my school doesn't need what you have to offer. And I've never heard of you. I write for Wing Chun Illustrated magazine. I know most of the main guys in all the different lineages. I've never heard of you or your teacher. So uh, what gives you the impression that you have something to offer my students? Oh, you want to train for free. Now I get it. All right. Because so, you don't want to pay for it. That's what it is. Right? You don't want to be a student and emptying your cup is something you expect the other person to do but not for yourself right and it's it's a very uh kind of duplicitous way of looking at these kind of things and uh i you know i i trained with magno gama my brazilian jiu-jitsu coach i think i was training with him for a year before i even told him i did anything else 
He, he one time asked me, he's like, hey, brother, he's got a very Brazilian accent. <laughs> you, you practice anything? And I'm like, ah, I've done some Wing Chun. And he's like, oh, is that a thing like Bruce Lee does? I'm like, yeah, yeah, something like that. He's like, oh, awesome, brother. And then later he found out he had a school. He said, ah, I didn't know you had a school. Because I don't go there going like, okay, well, I see this arm lock, but you know, in Wing Chun, I do a Paxel punch and just elbow him in the face afterwards. Because I wouldn't expect anyone to come to my school with that kind of attitude. And when I go and learn from someone else, I don't go in there and say like, well, you know, in Wing Chun, I probably wouldn't do a single leg takedown. I'm not in a Wing Chun school, I'm in his school. Why would I not want to respect the person I'm going to learn uh, from and, and try to interject myself out of ego to let them know, oh, well, you know, I also know something, all right? It's like, I get that you know something, but you're here to learn, so, and I, I feel that this is, um, you guys have certainly heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Oh, yep. So I, I have a feeling that, you know, these kind of, these less charitable examples that we've been talking about for the last few minutes, I feel that these are the people who are on the graph, they are in that Dunning-Kruger set where it's like their competency in the one thing they learned or the eight things that they learned is simply so low that they cannot comprehend how little of how little they actually know. And any expert in anything realizes one thing very quickly, and that's the limits of your own knowledge. Um, if, if you were to go back in time and speak to me 15 years ago, when I had only been teaching Wing Chun for five or six years, I had much stronger opinions about the art, the history, who learned what, who didn't know what, this, that, like, if, if you could go back to that version of me, that version of me was far more, I mean, people probably think I'm still opinionated, but that, that version of me was far more certain in things that now I look back and I go, you can't actually know that. You can't actually know who learned what or what Grandmaster Yip Man was thinking when he taught this guy or whatever. But back then I was full of confidence because as an instructor, I was extremely green and not as knowledgeable about the universe of stuff, even just within my own art that I do not know or perhaps is simply unknowable. And I'm much more hesitant to make positive claims about history or about the way certain techniques are presented and why than I was 15 years ago. And I feel that most of these guys haven't bridged, they, have, they haven't gone over that precipice where they realize, actually, I don't really know as much as I thought I did. Um, and I don't know if that's, I assume, you know, we, I feel like we're all kind of echoing each other, but I don't know if you guys have anything to add to that. Maybe Owen, you have something to say to that. Um, okay. yeah, 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 go ahead. All right. Sorry, I have to hop on this one because yeah, what you said right there, Sifu, we have said this over and over and over and over again on our show. And I didn't really understand this until I met Owen as an instructor. And that is being honest with yourself. You have to be honest with yourself. You know, I don't present myself as a Sifu because I'm not a Sifu. I, I, I am a practitioner that also likes to share information, but I'm not a Sifu. I don't know if I ever will be or even want to be, but five or six years ago, like you're saying, I might've walked around with a Sifu attitude. I did, but you know, just to go off of your example, you were honest with yourself and that takes progressive growth. And you're all, and, and I think that takes a mindset that not only thinks about how you teach, 
and how you train, but you're also thinking about your students. Because when you're honest with yourself, you not only have to think about your own training, but your students as well. And that, that has a much, much more expansive mindset. It's a much broader thing. And the honesty with yourself that, hey, maybe I don't know what Yip Man was thinking 65 years ago or 100 <laughs> years ago. Maybe I, I, you know, I, I don't know, uh, you know, all these, these other concepts. That is, that is honesty. And that comes with growth as a person and as a teacher. Owen? Sorry. Well, yeah, they just uh, to piggyback on what, what Randall was saying, you know, I think that takes a certain level of maturity, to be totally honest, you know, as a martial artist and as a human being, um, to, to just be able to sit back and go, you know, maybe I don't know. Maybe I, I'm unsure. Maybe I, I, you know, maybe that's where I need to put my effort. But um, I, and, and the, in terms of uh, this idea of honesty, it, me relating that to Randall, um, I'm not going to take credit for that because um, I, I don't know if you know who Tim Cartmel is. Uh, Tim Cartmel is a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu practitioner. Uh, he's a pretty high-level guy out in California. He teaches at Ace Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but he is also uh, my kung fu uncle in the Itzong system. Um, and he's done. He spent a long time in in Taiwan and in China studying uh, internal martial arts. So he's got a really unique background and a, and a really great perspective, I think, on martial arts in general. He's always been a very serious, practical martial artist. And uh, I had brought him out here several times uh, years ago, and that was one of the best pieces of advice that he gave me. He was just like, yeah, he's like, always just be honest. Just be honest about what you know, be honest about where you're at, and be honest about what you're practicing. And, you know, I really took that to heart because it's just been, and it's been, it's been, it served me very well for a very long time. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, I think as we're kind of winding down in today's conversation, I wanted to discuss a topic, and I believe you guys also mentioned it in that episode, that recent episode that you guys did. So uh, forget talking about cross training in other martial arts. Uh, what do you think about things like strength training and incorporating like a strength training routine or fitness routine or um, those kind of things? Because for example, in Wing Chun, uh, especially in the more traditional uh, kind of more staunch lines of Hong Kong style Wing Chun, if you if you were to even pick up a weight, you have automatically ruined your Wing Chun for life by virtue of picking up a weight. Um, and so uh, what do you guys think about uh, strength training? Is it something students should do right away? Should they wait? Are there certain types of strength training? So what, what your general ideas about cross training in, that, in those kind of uh, methods? So I, I, at some point, after Owen answers his and I answer mine, I want to get back to you, Sifu, because I want to hear you talk more about Dr. Kenneth J. Uh -huh. Yeah. That guy is awesome. Yep. And I can't remember that you were on a JKD podcast. I can't think of the gentleman's name. Dwight but Woods? Talk, yes. And, and you talked quite a bit about Dr. Kenneth J. And I'm a huge fan of his. And, I, you know, I'd love to hear you talk because you mentioned how his teaching methodology, forget the weights, forget the row machine, the way he presents the information also challenged you as a teacher. So I love that. So if you would share that with us in a few minutes, but to get onto my own story, um, about the same time I found Owen, um, I had a good buddy of mine that used to be a power lifter reach out to me. He's like, hey, are you still having some shoulder issues? I'm like, yeah, every now and then. And so he sent me a video and a pair of light Indian clubs. They look like little bowling pins. And they, these are the light ones. And so you learn these 
spherical patterns and it pulls on the connective tissue and the fascia and it really starts to open up the, the joints, right? It creates space in those joints. And that's super, super good and super healthy for you if you know what you're doing in the process. And then from there, you know, I started finding kettlebells. I started finding um, the mace, the steel mace, I'm a huge fan of. And then I started finding the heavier metal Indian clubs, which is a different uh, dynamic than the lighter ones on how you practice them. And so I've been training those almost in tandem with my shingy. And when, when I came to Owen, I love Wing Chun. This is my opinion about my Wing Chun that I practice under Sifu Mayor. It's very linear, you know, very, you know, attack oriented point A to point B. And I was training in a classical weight training method, you know, bench press, curl, tricep extension, stuff like that. And if you think about it, that's super linear. And we don't live in a linear world. You know, that's just something that we're gonna have to, you know, realize. And so what these other training modalities is they were working on spheres and angles and working all these motions in multiple planes. And then the Shingi does that quite a bit too. And my joke these days, Sifu, is I feel pretty competent on self-defense, but what I'm fighting is my job. Because I drive a 38,000 pound death machine with grandma and grandpa and the kids in the back, you know, people going to work, all these other things, and it is high stress. And I will do this job for 10 to 12 hours a day. And so because I am sitting that long, I need something that combats the sitting. I need something that helps me move well in a, in a small amount of time, whether it's an hour. If I, if, I, if I have two hours, I'll take it. I love training for two hours. And then I'll actually integrate my Kung Fu into it. I find that my best Wing Chun form practice comes when I keep about 20% in the tank. So I'm not totally gassed. I never go to totally gassed. But like, you know, maybe I'll do a set of kettlebells, maybe I'll swing my mace, and then maybe I'll do some light Indian clubs for an hour. And then I'll do some stretching because I've got, you know, the synovial fluids moving through the system, you know, the blood's pumped into all the joints, everything is open. And that's when I'll really start diving into slow practice. And, you know, like Sunum Tao, or maybe I'll just do the air dummy. I'll just practice the wooden dummy in the air, things like that. And that's when I'm getting the most benefit out of those forms. Or maybe I might just do a drill in the air, whatever it may be, you know, bong lap or, you know, uppercut drill, whatever it is. That's where I find I'm getting the most bang for my buck and how that actually supplements my Wing Chun training. I, I got a, I got a dumb, dumb uh, reference that I use for this. Do you guys remember the juice guy? Remember the guy that had the caterpillar? freaking eyebrows he was like 87 yeah jim, jim carrey did an awesome parody of him on in living color where he was juicing like things you should not juice <laughs> that's exactly right that's exactly right so he said something and i don't know it was probably something in my drunken college stupor days that stuck in my head you know it's 2 a.m and i'm like oh there's the juice guy maybe he's a prophet i'm gonna listen to him because i'm 21 years old and it's, i'm up way too late having a beer something that he said that I try to use in other areas of my life. Someone asked him, 
well, do you eat solid food? And he's like, I eat around my juicing, which sounds weird. Sounds like a steroid, you know, kind of phase or thing, something like that. But all of those weird dynamic weight trainings, those spherical trainings that I do, I do it around my, my Kung Fu practice. Because Kung Fu, the Chinese martial arts, the Xing Yi, the Wing Chun, the Bagua, that always comes first. So anything that I do in the weight zone or anything like that has to supplement my martial arts. I'm not supplementing my weight training with my Kung Fu, if that answers the question. I guess for me, um, you know, I, I, I played sports uh, when I was in high school specifically, you know, I lifted weights all through high school. So I, I had that sort of, that kind of physicality and that work ethic that I took into my martial arts training when I was in my twenties. And um, I've always, I've always, I just kept doing it. Um, now the style, like Randall was saying, you know, the, the style and the approach uh, has changed drastically since then, of course. Um, for me, uh, you know, I use a lot of, uh, so in Chinese internal martial arts, there's, there's sort of a, uh, a tradition of using like heavy weighted weapons, uh, like the big Bagua chopper and, and heavy, heavy spear, heavy sword, um, as you know, um, Xing is sort of famous for it's like big spear, but, um, and it's, it's those types of, I think that they're more dynamic. Um, and I think that they require a certain type of body integration that they're looking for. So it, it, as opposed to like me uh, trying to, you know, lift the weight or, or, or you know, uh, thrust the spear, um, I'm really trying to create a certain uh, body integration and then, and then use that to help push the spear or to lift the sword or to lift the weights. So yeah, to answer your question specifically, yes, I definitely still lift kettlebells. You know, uh, Randall's got me into a little bit of the club swinging, um, and you know, plus these heavy weighted weapons. And then uh, I had a really interesting discussion with uh, Lord Scholl one time, and and he was like, yeah, he's like, you know, internal martial arts is very good uh, at a lot of things, but really not great at cardio. So he's like, yeah, you always try to do, you got to do your cardio, and that's going to kind of fall outside the. The parameters of, of doing your art, um, uh, unless unless we're practicing like throwing or we're practicing, you know, like more like kind of like wrestling technique. In which case, I find that you know the, the cardio is pretty good in there. Right, right. Yeah, no, uh, that's uh, those are some really solid points. Uh, I think obviously the martial arts themselves often contain the necessary movement training, strength training to do that martial art. You know, sometimes students are like, "Well, I don't feel my punches." strong enough and I say, okay, well, how many punches are you doing a day? How often do you hit the wall bag? And then you are normally answered with a, uh, ah, so you're just coming to class and that's all the, all the training you're doing. And I think that there's a maybe an idea that the students should learn to really maximize the methods in the style, for example, in Wing Chun, using the wall bag or hitting a heavy bag or do, doing the forms, doing the T-cell, the partner training, the sparring a lot of the strength training you need to do the art well is built into the methods. And it's sometimes the students are not willing to really go into the methods deep enough and they want a shortcut. I, I generally don't have a problem with students doing uh, supplementary strength training. In, um, in Wing Chun in particular, if you read a lot of the old books that came out of the 70s, there was a conflation of strength training with bodybuilding. 
that if you were lifting weights, you were bodybuilding. But obviously we know that there's a cavernous gap between bodybuilding, which is just muscle hypertrophy, mainly for aesthetics, versus strength training. You lift weights differently for both. You have compound lifts on one side, isolated lifts for the other. By the way, and I'm not opposed to a Wing Chun person who wants to do a bunch of bicep curls to make their bicep look fine. I don't think it's gonna ruin their Wing Chun. I think the idea is that we've had bodybuilders in class who don't have good movement. And people think, well, if you lift weights, you're gonna be like that guy. Have you ever tried to be a bodybuilder? Do you know what it takes to be a bodybuilder? You know, you're not gonna to go to the gym for three months and come out looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger because you're doing a bodybuilding routine. And I think that there was a lot of hysteria about uh, becoming muscle bound and not being able to do the style. And I think that was confirmation bias about muscle bound people having limitations but you're not gonna take the proverbial 90 pound weakling and turn them muscle bound, but just by going to the gym and then ruin their Wing Chun, right? Um, and also if people, for example, in Wing Chun, we, we want our arm to be somewhat, to respond flexibly to our opponent's force. We don't wanna be stiff, but whether someone is stiff or flexible is usually in my experience, not a matter of whether they lift weights or not, it's their own nervous system. You know, they're just like, they're just people that are very, very tense and they need to completely relax before they can build the power again. And then there are people who are just too soft and we need to build them the other way. These are nervous system issues. These are not lifting weight problems, right? So I think that often these issues of people being stiff or muscle bound was a little bit of fear mongering about weightlifting, a little bit of confirmation bias about muscle bound people obviously having problems bringing their elbows in as if you're gonna do so much bench pressing as a Wing Chun person, you're gonna suddenly not bring, be able to bring your elbows in. Uh, so I think that that is usually where it comes from. Uh, to get back to what Randall had asked me about Kenneth J. Uh, Kenneth J is one of my very close friends and he uh, was originally an RKC master kettlebell instructor. He was very close to Pavel and at some point I believe, and I don't really like speaking for him. He's, he's, he can definitely speak for himself. This is just my version of what I understood. Um, he found the, uh, the method somewhat limiting. Uh, he found that maybe the RKC style was a little bit too linear. And uh, in order to be strong, we need to make sure, just like Randall said, we need to make sure that our body can move in different planes of motion. And this is uh, something uh, somewhat related to what's called imperfection training. Uh, where I believe um, he had, I believe there's actually a book called Imperfection Training and it was based on uh, a Russian hockey team which had spent an entire season doing uh, classical strength training, let's say bodybuilding stuff like bicep curls, tricep extensions, bench pressing, you know, the kind of classic stuff to increase their muscle power. And they ended up having one of the most injurious seasons of their entire career. They were just getting completely injured. And what they did is they had filmed all of the sessions and the games and they could see where the players were getting injured and they were not getting injured uh, where someone where they were using the sagittal plane because that's where they were strong in the up and down. It was when you have to go sideways real quick and change directions where the tendons and ligaments were not strong because they're only going this way and they had no strength in any other plane of motion. So then the idea was, well, maybe we can lift weights, not max, I mean, a max deadlift you have to do with some type of linear sagittal plane structure, but you could lift less weight with your feet at an offset angle, for example, 
You could lift things in an asymmetrical way, which mirrors what we do daily. We do, well, how, how much of what we do is really symmetrical, even in our martial arts, right? So um, Kenneth uh, basically applied this to the kettlebell methodology, but then went beyond that and then kind of taught how to apply it basically to all types of strength training. And then he obviously went into like cardio code and he's, he's also, uh, um, the strength and conditioning coach of UFC fighter Nicholas Dalby. And so he he knows everything about weight cutting. He has like a weight cutting course now. And he just came out with an isometrics course um, on his website, uh, which is all about isometrics, which is essentially tendon strength, which I feel is really the missing factor in a lot of strength training. Uh, just to give a very short example, I mean, I got you guys on to talk. I don't like talking when I have a lot of, when I have guests on, but you, you did ask me, so I'll talk about it. A common injury for bodybuilders, especially high level bodybuilders and bodybuilders who are using anabolic steroids is they tear their biceps tendon. And I have a student who is a bodybuilder and he tore his biceps tendon and the bicep then goes and that whole muscle rolls up and it's in your shoulder in a ball. Uh, just to give you an idea, he's a Cuban bodybuilder, all right? So I'm half Cuban. He's so badass, I, I told him, I said, hey, what happened? He said he was doing bicep curls, his bicep tendon ripped, his bicep went into the shoulder. And I said, what did you do? He said, I finished my set. <laughs> and it's like, how do you do bicep curls without a bicep? And he never got it repaired. And when you look at his bicep, his one bicep looks like it's a tennis ball right here. And this part is flat and his other one is fine. And the reason why this is a common injury for bodybuilders who are anabolic steroids is because um, in the anabolic phase of muscle recovery, the muscles grow really, really big and strong, but the problem is tendons require more time to strengthen because they don't, they don't uh, grow at the same rate as muscles, which get a lot more blood and oxygen and react to stimulus much more easily. It's harder to train the tendons. So what happens is when you're taking anabolic steroids and your muscles can grow so quickly, they surpass the strength of the tendon that holds it very quickly. And this manifests itself quite commonly in the biceps curl because of the sheer amount of bicep stuff bodybuilders do. And there's a classic example of, oh, your muscle's way too strong for your bicep. Uh, or so your, 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 yeah, your, your bicep is way too strong for your tendon that's holding it. And this is also why consequently you see people, for example, people like Bruce Lee, who are not huge muscle bound guys, but can seemingly punch or move or have strength way past their pay grade because they seem to have a far higher tendon uh, to muscle strength ratio, which allows them to be more explosive and to really push through and to do things the average person can't do. And in terms of health, tendon strength is everything. So um, Kenneth really brought me into this whole idea of tendon uh, strength training, which is the tendon is only stimulated by two types of movement. Um, isometric holds, that is the muscles are not contracting or expanding and ballistic movements, very fast movements. So think of like training your tendons by throwing a, a, a pitching a, a baseball really fast or by pushing against a fixed object. So on the movement spectrum, the tendons, and this is from what I understood, I'm not a sports physiologist, just what I understood. Uh, the tendons are stimulated on the extreme and opposite ends of the movement spectrum. No movement that is isometric, full load, and ballistic movement. And when you look at traditional Chinese martial arts, a lot of the forms 
contain both of them within the movements. Now, they didn't know it from a scientific standpoint. They knew it from years of trial and error where you would have certain forms where you would suddenly whip and then stop and then hold yep. and then move. And then we start to see why many of these masters perhaps had this legendary strength. And it was because the certain forms, certain methods, uh, you know, ho holding a heavy weapon and then stopping suddenly and keeping it from moving, you're going from a ballistic to a static isometric type hold. These things were baked in. And now that we have this knowledge of that, we can then accentuate that even further to improve our strength training. And uh, more importantly, as I get older, our general health and our ability to move. So um, uh, yeah, if you guys are interested in Kenneth J's stuff, I don't have uh, his website off the top of my head, uh, but if you Google Dr. Kenneth J, he's a big Thor looking, every time I'm next to him, I just feel like an absolute child. Um, uh, how because tall is he? He's so big, like I sometimes joke when someone is mildly bigger than me, I say, oh, like you're like my Iron Man suits, right? But uh, Kenneth is just simply too big to be my Iron Man suit. He's just huge. And uh, he uh, is a very humble person. He's obviously a scientist, doctor of sport physiology. He has a, he's, everything he does is about research and you know, not talking out of what's cool and trendy, but looking what does the research say for these methodologies. Um, he's also like, um, he would say he's kind of a casual martial arts practitioner, but he's been doing this and that for a while. And uh, uh, I wouldn't mess with Kenneth J. <laughs> um, and if anyone is interested in improving their uh, strength training, cardiovascular training, uh, tendon strength training, isometrics, all this kind of stuff. Uh, I, I really cannot recommend a better resource than Dr. Kenneth J. He's on Instagram. Uh, and I'm sure if you go to his Instagram, Dr. Kenneth J, uh, uh, he, uh, is, uh, he also has some ones called first son of Odin, um, because he literally looks like Thor. Um, all of his links are on there and he's got a bunch of courses and, uh, I normally don't recommend a lot of people in that strength training world, but Kenneth J is head and shoulders above anyone. Uh, you know, I put him and Dr. Mark Cheng on the highest of pedestals when it comes to movement and strength training and, and sports physiology. Those, for me, those are the two greats right there. So um, yeah, um, before we get out of here, uh, Owen, how can people find out uh, about um, your classes, your, your study group, as you call it? Where can, where can people get connected with you? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Instagram um, under it's Gowman one or you can uh, find me uh, also on Instagram at Boulder Internal Arts and uh, Boulder Internal Arts, my blog spot, you, all my all my information's on there. So awesome. And Randall, how can people get a hold of you? I'm on pretty much all the social medias under Red Forest Chinese Boxing Instagram. I've got a Facebook account and uh, yeah, you can find me from there. Um, I'm teaching a uh, once a month seminar out in the parks, and then I'll be doing another fundraiser for my friends down at 5280 Shaolin in January or February this year. I need to get um, Sipu John and figure out when that is. And then if you want to listen to us on our podcast, you can reach out Kung Fu Conversations. Um, we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook. On any platform that you listen to, Spotify. Usually, I listen. I think you guys are on Spotify, right? That's where I listen to you guys. We're on Spotify, yeah, and Apple and Google and all the stuff. So, hey, thanks for having us on today, Sifu. This was a blast. 
Yeah, That's thank great. you so much thank for you. coming, guys. I appreciate it. All right, everyone. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of The Kung Fu Genius. As always, don't forget to subscribe to The Kung Fu Genius. Hit that bell for notifications. And if you have any ideas for a future episode of the podcast, write them in the comments below. And as always, I'll see you guys next time. Word is I'm a kung fu genius Technique speaks for me, not lineage Forget Jet Li, cause I'm the one Many call me Sifu, but to you I'm Kung, And I produce masters, you surpassed us Your kung fu stiffer than corpse and caskets City Wing Chung is the house I built Violate the gate and your blood gets spilt Alex Richter, always the victor Lots of training across multiple styles Then a lot, I was gonna try to give... I wanted to cut, get a, another chicken yeah, pun. Yeah, you wanted to put another get, chicken pun in there. I was just like, oh, why did, didn't one come straight up? All right, Popeyes, on today's episode of the Kung Fu Genius, the genius, oh my God, what the, just... <laughs> That's it, okay, yeah. All right, Popeyes, on to... Okay, breathe. Breathe. Chicken sandwich. Yeah, breathe in that chicken grease. Louisiana chickens fast. Louisiana. Okay.